Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to John chapter 20. That shouldn't be a great surprise. What we're going to do today is a little different. I'm not trying to be cute. I just really feel this from the Lord. As a church, we go through books of the Bible. We've been in the Gospel of John for at least three years. Don't don't anybody tell me how long it's really been. It it worries me. But uh, But we've been going through it. And so we've been going through John 20 already. And we've seen, uh, we've seen the, the moment of the res- resurrection and all. Uh, but we've come to this passage of, of, of Sunday evening. Of the Lord's resurrection appearance in a locked room with his disciples. It's a powerful moment. And I, I, I believe the Lord wants us to look at that today. So let's open our hearts. Let's ask for the, the Lord to reveal himself to us. Lord, we ask for cl- open ears. We want to hear your word. We want you to speak to us. We ask for open eyes to see you, Lord. You are, you are the resurrected living God. You're here with us right now. We ask, Lord, by the Spirit, we would see that. We would see you. And I pray for the grace to get out of the way. We want to behold you and love you. We want to reach out and take, take hold of you by faith afresh today. Grace us to do that, we ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Friday evening, Friday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he died. Uh, He had gone through a a horrific uh, uh, 12 hours. He had been beaten. Uh, He had been scourged, which I won't go into. He had been uh, crucified, which is the nails and the hanging there, suffocating slowly. He'd gone through all of that. And then about three in the afternoon, which is a a meaningful time for Israel. That's when the shofar would have been blown in the temple because it was the evening sacrifice, the offering of the lamb. So somewhere over Jerusalem and and where he was crucified is just a a few hundred yards there north of 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 the third wall. And you would have heard, and then they would have blown the shofar somewhere about then. Jesus asked for uh, a drink of something. He said, I'm thirsty. Thirsty. Uh, the soldiers took uh, a branch of hyssop. John, who was close to the cross, uh, saw this. And he, they, he said, he, he reports that it was hyssop. Hyssop is the very plant that the high priest uses to dip in the blood and sprinkle. <laughs> and it grows wild. And so some soldier grabbed a branch of hyssop and stuck a sponge on it full of vinegar and held it up to his mouth and uh, gave him a drink. He needed to clear his throat. He needed to be able to say something. He had one last thing to say. So he takes this, this, this drink of vinegar and then with all of his might, because the other gospels, uh, the, the other writers were not nearby. They were at a distance. Uh, so they didn't hear what he said. But John stood by the cross with, with uh, four women. And uh, he heard what he said. And he, and he takes that drink of vinegar. And then with, his, with all of his might, he shouts out one word. Who, who remembers what it is? Tetelestai. Uh, tetelestai. 
It's the, it's the Greek word we're reported, paid in full. That word was literally stamped on bills. I mean, we find, we find documents with tetelestai on it. It meant paid in full. So he takes this drink. He shouts, paid in full. And then he gave up his spirit. They didn't kill him. He left. And his, he drops. Two old men are watching this. One is Joseph of Arimathea. He's a wealthy man, and he actually owns uh, a, a new uh, tomb that he's, he's had dug in the, in the, the limestone wall uh, near about 100 yards away. And he's watching this, and so is Nicodemus. Both of these are members of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, Jesus calls the teacher of Israel, so he's enormously popular. A very well-known personality. And, and the Bible speaks of Joseph of Arimathea as being extremely wealthy and also very prominent. So these two old men are watching all of this. And they realize that this is Isaiah 53 taking place in front of their eyes. These men know the Bible backwards and forwards and have it memorized. And they're watching these things unfold in front of them. And they, can do, they, they cannot be passive any longer. They cannot hide. They have been quietly believing, but now they have to come out. So one goes, goes to uh, Pilate, the governor, and says, would, would you give us the body? Pilate says, is he dead? Uh, the, 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 the centurion says, yeah, he's, he's dead. Uh, he says, all right, you can have the body. And so those two old men take the body down. And they prepare it for burial. And they would have wrapped the body with uh, long strips of linen mixed with myrrh uh, and aloes. Uh, what we find is that uh, from the early church father that when you mixed myrrh and aloes in those kinds of things, it turned into a cast. It becomes like lead, says Chrysostom. Uh, he says it becomes like lead. So you, they wrapped Jesus in this, this stuff and it became like a cast on him. And then they buried him in Joseph's uh, tomb right there. Two women watched. It was uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Uh, those two women watched. They followed and literally sat there, we're told, and sat and watched the men do this. And for some reason, they decided we need to come back and do it again. Um, either the old men just didn't do a good job, which, come on, we old men don't always do the best sort of jobs. Um, so either they didn't do a good job or that women, and I think this may be part of it too, just wanted to worship him themselves. By this point, those women think he's a prophet, not, not the Messiah. After the death, there is no faith in anybody. Uh, but they love him dearly. And they honor him as a, as a great prophet and a great man of God. And they're just very confused. So he's buried. The, the stone is rolled. This morning, this Sunday morning... Before daylight, I mean, just the first graying of the sky, uh, there was a tremendous earthquake. Stone was rolled back, and actually an angel sat on the tomb, on the, on the stone. There were guards there. They fainted. Uh, slain in the spirit or just scared spitless, I don't know which, but down they went. And a group of women, Mary Magdalene and about four other women, came out to the tomb. They were there to... Uh, to do this burial properly. They're going to put new spices and probably perfumed oil and just, just love the body of Jesus. That's what they were there for. They didn't expect him to be alive. They didn't think they'd find a risen Lord. They had none of that. They just wanted to be kind and love the, the dead body of Jesus and honor him properly.
So out they come to do this. As soon as they get to the garden, they look, and there's the tomb door, and it's open. Mary does not even go any further. She goes, oh, they've taken the body. And she turns and runs and goes back and tells James and, uh, P- Peter and John, they've, stole, they've taken the body, and we don't know where they've put him. The other group of women stayed there, and they kind of crept up to that door, and they looked in. There were two angels in there. They said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Because <laughs> we didn't believe. <laughs> they then actually meet the Lord on the way back to town. Mary goes to, James, uh, to, to John and, and, and Peter, and she says they've, they've stolen the body. He, those two men immediately run back to the tomb. Uh, John uh, outruns Peter. He gets there, but he's, he doesn't have the nerve to go in. So he just looks in and sees those. Remember how I said the, the, the linen wrappings, when you mix them with the myrrh, uh, turn into like cement? There's those things, but nobody's in them. You've got this cast, and it's empty. Now, how do you do that? John looking, and Peter, being Peter, just huffs and puffs right in the door. He doesn't wait for anything. Uh, and I don't know what he said when he went in. Maybe oy vey, maybe <laughs> praise the Lord. I, I don't know which it was. But something he said caused John to go, what? And John goes in with him. And they sit there and they stare at this thing. And there is this body cast, this, these wrappings empty, with the face cloth folded and set aside. John tells us that they, they, that they believed Something had happened, but they didn't understand the resurrection. I suppose they thought the body had been taken like, like Elijah or something. Some miracle has happened. They're, they're marveling at that. But they still don't realize he has come not only back to life resuscitated, he has resurrected into a whole new level of being. They don't understand that. So they go back. All through that day, there are appearances. Mary will come back to the garden to weep. Just sit outside it and sob that somebody stole the body of Jesus. She's just sick at heart. And then he comes up behind her and says, you know, what are you looking for? And she thinks he's the groundskeeper. And she says, sir, if you've, uh," she won't look him in the eye. A woman is not going to look at a man in the eye like that. So she's looking down. She says, sir, if you've you've taken him, um, please tell me where you put the body and, and, and I'll come and have it taken away, please. And then finally he says, and the, and, the, and, the, and the Bible records it in the Aramaic. It says, Mariam. She turns and it's him. That day he appeared to, to Peter. We don't know what was said, but we're, it's reported twice. That he had a private appearance with Peter. And uh, somehow spoke to him and comforted him. Peter came back to the group of disciples. Mary came back to the group of disciples and said, we've seen him. He's alive. No one believed them. Now, that, if I were Peter, that would tick me off. <laughs> Two disciples were walking out to the, to, the, to, the, to the town of Emmaus. That's about seven miles to the northwest. It's a priestly town. And on the way, Jesus comes up and begins to teach them and talk to them. Finally, their eyes are revealed, and they see that it's Jesus. And then they come back. They also come to this gathering I'm about to tell you about. 
And they say, we've seen him. And then they say, and Peter told you the truth. He is alive. Peter probably going. And they still wouldn't believe. That's where we pick up here. John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were for fear of the Jews, meaning, and whenever it says Jews like that, it's talking about the religious leaders. We're talking about Caiaphas and Annas and a few others of the, the core of that uh, religious uh, Sanhedrin that is hostile to Jesus. Came and, and, and said to the, uh, came and stood in their midst and said to them, what do you think he, he said? Jonathan actually mentioned it just now. It, my, the Greek is peace to you. What do you, what do you think he said actually? Shalom, of course, yeah. So he stands there, he's suddenly in this locked room, shalom. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so the Lord said to them again, shalom. Probably this time, calm down. Shalom, peace. And then he gives them this assignment. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Would you say that? As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then when, when he had said this, he breathed on them. I'll tell you what it, it says, the word actually. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Say that if you would. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he continued. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Let's say that out loud. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not the end of his ministry. It was the end of a chapter. One stage of his assignment was now complete and it was time for the next stage to begin. So when he appeared to his disciples on that Sunday evening, Jesus had much more in mind than simply convincing them that he was alive. He walked through those locked doors to announce the beginning of a new chapter in God's great plan of salvation. He had fulfilled his earthly part of that plan, and now it was their turn. Because of his death and resurrection, all that they had seen God do through him over the past two and a half years would continue and be multiplied through them. The day of God's great harvest was about to begin. Jesus is not just there to say, see, I'm alive. He will actually say later, it's better the people who believe that haven't seen. So he's not just there to prove something. He's there to give an assignment. He's there, to he's there because the new season has begun. He's there like a general in front of his troops. He's there to send them out. He's there to prepare them for the next step. I, I mentioned this, this harvest. I want you to see this. This is, this is deeply part of scripture. Uh, I'll, I'll, if you've got your Bible, you can follow with me if you want to. I'm going to Isaiah 53. I'll do this real quickly. But I want you to see that it is prophesied that after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there will be a great harvest of souls. That now, that now, this is the season when God begins to really gather in great numbers of people. Isaiah 53, of course, is, is, is the description of Jesus' death and, 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 and reference to his resurrection. It is so clear 
in explaining what Jesus did and that he died for our sins, you do, there's no chapter in the New Testament clearer. You, you, you can get so saved from Isaiah 53. It's just, there it is. It's as clear as any passage in the New Testament. It's brilliant. Look at verses 10 and 11 if you have it. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by, the, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify what? Many, and he will bear their iniquity. All right, so now, now you've had, here's, here's been the great sacrifice. Look at Isaiah 54. What's, what? It opens up and it says, shout for joy, O barren one. Who's the barren one? Israel. Israel hasn't produced any fruit to speak of. They haven't evangelized the world. We don't have a great harvest here. We're just barely hanging on to our faith. He speaks to Israel and he says, shout for joy, O barren one. Break forth into joyful shouting with a cry aloud, you who have not travailed. Birth pains. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Enlarge the curtains of your dwelling Spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs for you will spread out abroad to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess the nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Now that Christ has been crucified, now that he has risen from the dead, people of God, prepare a big tent because huge numbers are coming in. People from, are going to be gathered from all over the nations of the world. Has that happened? Is it still happening? Yeah. <laughs> You're living in the time of the greatest harvest that the world has ever known. Right now, there's about 2 billion uh, people who will at least call themselves Christians. Out of 7 billion something. Look at the proportions of this. I mean, this has grown from a, from a handful of people to, to an enormous percentage of the planet Earth. And it's still growing. Expand your tent. They're coming in. They're coming in from all the nations of the world. Not just Israel. We have, there, are, there are men and women here in our Church are Jewish and, 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 and serving Jesus Christ. I wish I were, but I'm not. I'm a Gentile, but I'm now included. I'm now part of this great harvest. Look at Isaiah 55, verse 1. I'll just show you that. Here's the gospel call. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The invitation is anyone thirsty, anyone hungry, anyone want God, you're all welcome. Look at Isaiah 56. I'll, t I'll look at verse 3. Let the foreigner, let not the foreigner, that's all of us who are not Jewish, who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. In other words, those who are ceremonially unclean. Let all the peoples of the earth, those who aren't Jewish, those who grow up in all of these different backgrounds, people who are ceremonially unclean, let them not say they don't belong to the Lord. He, he says, uh, for verse five, to them I will give my house, in my house, and within my walls, a memorial, a name better than sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And he talk about gathering it in. Jesus is saying to his disciples, "That begins now. I have risen. As the Father sent me, I send you." Go. Here we go. The harvest begins. Let's go back to this. Over the course of the past four days, 
he had taught them about this new season that lay ahead. And underlying it all was the promise that after he was glorified, they would enter into a relationship with God far deeper than any human had ever experienced. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, marks the point in which there is a relationship with God that nobody except himself had ever experienced before. And I give you a reference there to John the Baptist. He and the Father would come to dwell within them, and the Holy Spirit would fill their innermost being so abundantly that his presence would be like rivers of living water. That moment was fast approaching. His suffering, death, and resurrection had made it all possible. So after a busy day of appearing to numerous disciples, Jesus walked into that locked room where many were fear fearfully hiding, and like a general addressing his troops, made it absolutely clear to them that everything he had said to them over the past 48 hours, which they hadn't really believed at the time, was in fact going to happen. That evening he gave them and us an assignment and empowerment and spiritual authority. Would you say those three with me? An assignment, an empowerment, and spiritual authority. Let's do it once more. An assignment, an empowerment, and spiritual authority. For the past two and a half years, he had modeled what their future ministry should look like. Then by his cross and resurrection, he had broken the power of sin and death, so that now all who believed in him would become capable of doing the same sort of ministry that he did. We have a class right now going on called Doing What Jesus Did. Because of this. Because we have been called and invited to do the same sort of ministry that he did. He reminded them that the scriptures had prophesied that this would happen. And then he breathed on them and said, receive, literally in the Greek, take, take the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that he also told them to wait for that power to arrive. He had done his part, now it was their turn. Now let's go back and look more closely at John's description of that Sunday evening. Let's join those disciples in that locked room and receive for ourselves Jesus' assignment, his empowerment, and his spiritual authority. It's important to me. What I think what the Lord wants, he wants us to go right back into that room and live it. Wants us to see it. Wants us to feel it. Wants us to be there, as it were, and respond. All right, verse 19. At this verse, John takes us forward in time to the early evening of that same day. He uses a word which tells us the events he's about to describe took place before the next day. What we're, that, that upper room, or that locked room gathering is taking place on, on late Sunday. The disciples were gathered in, at an undisclosed location, and John pictures their frightened, defeated condition by telling us the doors where the disciples had been, were, had been locked. That's what it says, not just shut, locked, because of the fear of the Jews, the religious leaders. They were afraid that Caiaphas and his corps of hostile leaders within the Sanhedrin were not satisfied after executing Jesus, but also wanted to eliminate his disciples to prevent the movement Jesus had started from continuing. It would take a strong lock to prevent the temple police from breaking down that door. But John tells us that it was locked to show us the fear that had gripped them and also to help us imagine the shock that filled that room when Jesus came and stood in the middle of their gathering. Luke says they, the disciples were 
terrified and filled with fear because they thought they were seeing a ghost. No wonder the first words out of Jesus' mouth were, peace to you or shalom. He wanted them to calm down. People often look at that and that he came into a locked room and the idea is that he's, maybe he's ghost-like. It's sort of, he, he came into the room sort of, like that. I, I want to submit to you that I think the exact opposite is the case. Jesus is not ghost-like. The wall is ghost-like. Brothers and sisters, the, the resurrected life that we will be part of, we will be resurrected to and be part of, is so much more real than this one. That the day will come when you will look back on these years here in this season on this planet. There'll be a resurrected earth. We're going to be on it. But you're going to look back at the season. It'll be the shadow lands. This will be that dark, misty season. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> what a strange place that was. You are going to be resurrected into, into a body just like his. It's, and I'm on, you're going to see here in a second. It's, so, it's solid. This is not a mysterious body. It's not a vaporous sort of thing like, mm, it, it's, it's real. He says, touch me. He'll, he'll eat something in front of them. Is that good news or what? You and I are going to be resurrected into bodies that can eat. <laughs> Don't tell me it's not heaven. It just is what it is. So, so he's resurrected. He's solid. Uh, he, he doesn't have to. He, he doesn't float through the walls. He, he, he's so real. He just is, enters the room. And I would also argue he was there all the time. He's there all the time. After saying that, Jesus also showed them the, hand, his, the hands inside. And Luke adds that he challenged their unbelief by saying, why are you shaking with fear and why do conflicting thoughts arise in your hearts? That's, that's what he says. See my hands and feet that I, that I am myself. Touch me. See, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones just as you behold that I have. And then as further proof of how real and solid he was, Luke tells us Jesus asked for something to eat. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and ate it. He ate it in front of them. I, I, I love this. I, I've done it a lot of times. I, it's so much fun. I'm going to do it again. So he says, all right, because they're still like, he says, have you got something to eat? And they hand him this broiled fish and he takes this thing. And I, I, did he toy with them? And he eats it. And you just, you, you know what this is about. They're all watching to see if it falls out. <laughs> and it didn't. He eats this in front of them. Look at me. Touch me. See me? I'm real. After that, Luke says he reminded them that he had taught... Uh, he reminded them that he had taught them that it was prophesied in the scripture that he would suffer, die, and rise from the dead on the third day. And then he added that the scriptures also promised that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. He said that in that same meeting. So there would be no doubt in their minds as to who it was who would proclaim these things to the nations. 
Jesus added, you are witnesses of these things. That was, this was their assignment. They were to go and proclaim what the scriptures said about Jesus. And then to testify to their listeners that they had seen with their own eyes those prophecies fulfilled. I think that it was at this point in his message that Jesus spoke the command that John records. Peace to you, just as the Father has sent me as his representative. I am also sending you forth. He uses two words there. Just as the father apostello, apostle, as he has sent me, endowed with authority as his representative, I send you forth. In other words, they would bear witness to him by following his spiritual leadership and by depending on his power and authority in exactly the same way as he had done with the father. The father had directed every action in his ministry and inspired every word he preached. In the same way, he would direct every act of their ministry and inspire every word they preached. And all of this would be now possible because of his death and resurrection. After giving his disciples that assignment, Jesus did something which still causes much debate among Bible students of the Bible. John literally says he inbreathed them and said to them, take the Holy Spirit. His action raises the question as to whether it was at this moment or later at Pentecost that Jesus gave his disciples the promised indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Have you heard that debate? People will say, see here now, John says, uh, reports that he breathed on them and said they received the Holy Spirit. Well, did they get it then or did they get it at Pentecost? And people will say it's the joining Pentecost as though John wasn't present at Pentecost. It's really stupid, but they do say that. But to answer that question... We need only place his action and words back into the larger context which Luke provides. Remember this. Luke records the same meeting. What Luke records in Luke 24 is the very same meeting. So you put the two upon each other and you've got quite the picture. Once we had done that, we quickly recognized that by breathing upon his disciples... Jesus was prophetically symbolizing that he was the one who would send the Spirit to them on Pentecost. Luke tells us that during that same meeting, Jesus also made this statement. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That means that Jesus breathed on his disciples, told them to receive the Holy Spirit, and then told them to wait in the city until that promised infilling actually arrived. Does that make sense? In this way, Jesus was confirming what John the Baptist had proclaimed about him, that he was the one through whom the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit would be given. He was also illustrating to his disciples that he had a part to play, they had a part to play in the process. They must actively reach out and take the Holy Spirit whom he would send. Just as he would breathe out the Spirit upon them, they must breathe him in. They must actively welcome him to take up residence within them. Did you follow that? This is where we get so confused. We forget that there's a divine side and a human side. So Jesus breathes, and I'm going to show you the meaning of that word because it's just outrageous. He breathes in them, And he says, now, take it. God exhales, but it's your job and mine to inhale. 
He gives, we receive. He pours out, we drink. Do you follow that? And because we miss those two sides, we get all muddled up. When you receive Christ, you have everything. But you need to receive it. There's that stepping out and saying, Lord, I, I drink, I breathe, I receive what you've given to me. He doesn't force himself on us. You and I say, thank you for this great gift. Come and fill me with rivers of living water. Hallelujah. Verse 22 there. The word John chose, this is important, to describe inbreathing that Jesus performed that evening is a word seldom used. This is the only use in the New Testament. And it's used only seven times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There it is used to describe God breathing life into Adam in Genesis 2-7. Remember what happened? The Lord makes this uh, clay statue of a man. And then it says he breathed into his nostrils. So the Lord leans over, breathes into the nostrils of this, this clay statue. And this clay statue comes alive. That's the word right there. Now here's, the, here's another place. It is also used, to, uh, it is also in the prophecy of Ezekiel concerning the valley of dry bones. In that prophecy, Ezekiel records what the Lord said to him as he showed him a vision of a valley strewn with dead bodies. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and here's the word, inbreathe these slain that they may come to life. The prophecy is this, God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these, this valley strewn with dead bodies, all the spiritually dead people. And he says, prophesy that the spirit will come and, and they will breathe in life. Isn't that beautiful? You know, you know where else it's used? Just for fun. Elijah, when he has the dead boy and he, and he lays on top of him, and three times, he breathes into the dead body, and the boy comes to life. That's the word. Since Luke tells us that at that gathering, Jesus had already opened their minds to understand the scriptures, it is very possible that during his explanation of Bible passages, he reminded them of the promises found in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, which are all about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In that case, the image of Ezekiel blowing or in-breathing dead bodies or, or asking that the Spirit would, which represented the spiritual deadness of God's people, would be fresh on their minds. And they would have remembered that the Lord had promised Israel, I will put my Spirit within you. And you will come to life. In order to be Jesus' witnesses and carry on his ministry, the disciples would need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they would need spiritual authority. So no sooner had Jesus said, take the Holy Spirit, than he added, if you forgive the sins of someone, those sins have been forgiven them. If you hold fast the sin of someone, they have been held fast. We have an assignment. We have an empowerment. And while we have authority, verse 23, if we put Jesus' words about spiritual authority into the larger context Luke provides, their meaning becomes clear. Apparently, just before he made this statement about forgiving or holding people accountable for their sins, he said this, 
Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So the authority he's giving his disciples is not an arbitrary authority to forgive or hold in judgment whomever they please. But the privilege of announcing forgiveness to those who sincerely repent. And the responsibility to warn those who refuse. That at some point in time they will face the judgment of God. To hear someone exercise this authority we need only to listen to Jesus, Peter, or Paul when they preached. We also have an example of this authority being applied to an individual when Paul disciplined an immoral man in the Corinthian church. And then apparently announced his forgiveness and restoration after the man repented. As we read these passages, it's important for us to remember that this authority, along with Jesus' assignment and the promise of empowerment, was given to all his disciples and remains in effect today. What he said to them, he says to us. Are you listening? He gives you and me the assignment. He breathes and says, take, receive, inbreathe in the Holy Spirit. Be full of the Spirit. And he says to you and me, and I give you authority. I give you authority to announce forgiveness. When you see men and women repentant, you declare their forgiveness. That they're washed clean. That they're loved. That they're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. You tell them that. And if they decide they're not going to, if they intend to stay in their rebellion, warn them. Warn them that there is a judgment that they will face. Seeing Jesus. When Jesus walked into that room full of disciples, his physical presence changed everything. They went from being frightened and confused to bold witnesses of the risen Lord. But what they didn't realize, and we may not realize, is that Jesus was standing among them even before they could see him. Thomas would soon discover that fact in a very embarrassing way. Thinking that he was speaking in private at the time, he angrily announced that he wouldn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he could put his finger into his scars. Remember that? This group, that I, we, with this meeting we just talked about, breaks up, goes out. Thomas isn't there. They go to Thomas. They say, he was there. We, he ate in front of us. He, we touched him. He's real. And Thomas, I mean, check this out, goes... No way. And, and then he says something that's really disgusting. I won't believe till I can stick my finger in his scars. He thinks it's in private. <laughs> Eight days later, when Jesus again appeared to the disciples, the first thing he did was go straight to Thomas and invite him to put his finger into his scars. Wouldn't that be... How would you like to be Thomas right about then? You know, everybody's going, here's Jesus. And you go, oh, and he, and he comes right over to you. Where, where's Thomas? Thomas, come here. Go ahead, bud. I don't need to now. I'm fine. I got, I'm good. I'm good. Do you think he touched him? I, I, I don't. I would, like, like, no, I got it. I'm in this. He had heard, Jesus had heard every word. He was present even when they couldn't see him. And he's present here with us right now. Look, 
he's here now. Just as much. That, that'll change your life, by the way, that, that truth. If you realize that there is no private moment. Never are you alone when Jesus is not in the room. Boy, I'll tell you, as a young teenager, I met, I met the Lord when I was 12. Uh, but boy, does that change the way you date. He's, you got Jesus riding in the back seat, you know. Where are we going? Where do you want us to go? <laughs> it just changes everything, doesn't it? Changes how you do business. Changes how you talk. There's no private moment at home when you're saying things. He's not there listening. He's, you're never in private. He's always with us, which is a lovely thing, but also sort of we should know it. Our response. Since Jesus' words were not simply directed to that room full of people, but to every person who believes in him through their word, let's picture him standing in front of us right now and ask ourselves three questions. Number one, do I personally know him? Or is this my day to surrender to him as my Lord and to trust him to forgive my sins? If Jesus were to appear physically right now and stand here among us, what would be your reaction? Would you look up and say, why, it's Jesus. I've always wanted to meet him. There he is. Look at that. When I, when I say that, if he were to stand here, you, you know instantly whether you know him or you know about him. And that's the difference. Some here today would look up and go, oh, there you are. Because he's with them all the time. They talk to him constantly. He is the closest, dearest friend they have. And so it's cool to see him. But there he is, my friend. Or there he is, someone I've heard about, I admire great man, a great teacher, who, I mean, who knows who, maybe the savior of the world. I know those things, but I don't know him. If you would like to know him, I'm going to go describe right now two simple way, steps. They're simple, but they're deeply, they're difficult, but they're simple. Number one is repentance. Some people would say you don't need to repent. I would say that that's absolutely false. The way we lost our relationship with God was in the garden. You remember what we did? How did, how did the human race break in their relationship with God in the first place? They took a fruit off of a tree. Remember this? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they ate the apple, you might say. Well, the point is, if, if you leave the apple on the tree, that means God decides what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. If you pick the apple off the tree, you decide for yourself what's good and evil. You do what's right in your own eyes. You understand? And this is, the, this is where the problem has come. Not that people ever, everybody's running around trying to do bad stuff. But that people do what's right in their own eyes and not in his. So the root of this whole thing is a deep submission. Do I trust God? Do I respect God? Do I think he's good? Do I think he's wise? Do I think he's made me? Do I think he has a purpose for me? Or do I think I'm just on my own floating here? Because if he's that person, am I willing to put that apple back on the tree and say, from this day forward, you're the boss? 
What you say goes. And, and I'll remind you, the God, this God is the God of the Bible. Not just the God of love. He is a very loving God, but he's also a righteous God. So if I put the apple back on the tree, that changes the way I talk, the way, the way I treat my wife, changes the way I handle my money, changes my sex life. It changes everything when I put the apple back on the tree. Now, some people, some people say, that's very nice, and when I'm old like you, I'll probably do that. Because <laughs> then it won't matter anymore, right? That's for me to know. And some of you are sick and tired of your own decisions and the way life's been going. And you say, I know what happens when I make decisions. I know what happens when I live and do what's right in my own eyes. I've had, I can just look at the, at the wreckage and I'm through with it. And I need God to guide me. I need him to lead me. I need him to show me how to live because I'm, I'm tired of the old ways. If that's you, then you can have him as your Lord. And he will come into your life as intimately as I've described. He will counsel you. He will guide you. What he'll do is he'll, 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 he'll begin to turn your, the course of your life. Just like turning the wheel on a boat, or the rudder on a boat. He'll start steering you into the purpose and plan for which he made you in your mother's womb. You have been designed by God from the moment of conception to serve him and glorify him. That's a privilege. It's not, he doesn't need you to help him. He's actually made you so that you can do eternal work. And what will happen is he'll start steering your life into that. He'll start cleaning things up. He'll start teaching you and growing you and having you, having you become a blessing to others. That's what you'd be saying yes to. And the second thing you'd be saying yes to is, 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 is faith. You would repent, but you would also... Not only believe in Jesus. See, look, at, look, you could say this. I believe in Jesus. I think he died on the cross. I think he's God. I think all of those things. And, not, and you still aren't saved. Those are facts and they're true. He becomes our savior when we reach out and say, he didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. I am going to trust him that he is my savior, that because of what he did, I'm forgiven before God. That when I stand before God someday, his goodness, his cross will cover my sin. You see, I reach out actively and by faith, I take hold of Jesus and I trust him as my Lord and savior. I'm going to give a, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer right now. And just say, anyone wanted to say, Jesus Christ, I'm receiving you right now. If you'd like to pray with me, please do. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your beloved son. He's beautiful. I see your love. I see your holiness. This day, I don't want to simply know about Jesus. I want to know him. And so I begin by bowing my knee. I put the apple back on the tree. I say to you, Jesus, you are my Lord. I trust you. I trust your wisdom, your goodness. I, I, I submit to you gladly. 
and ask you to change my life. Clean me. Heal me. Comfort me. Direct me. Put me on the path you've ordained for me. I put my hand in yours. And I'll never take it away. I want you to lead me. Every day. The rest of my life. I love you dearly. And I want to be with you forever. Jesus Christ. I trust that what you did on the cross. Your death. Paid the price. For my sin. You died for the whole world. But you died for me. And this day I put my arms around that cross. And I hang on. And I'll never let go. I will never trust my own goodness. I will never let the devil condemn me. And say you don't love me. I'll hang on to your cross. And trust you as my great savior. Forever. My Lord. And my savior. In your name I pray. Amen. I have another question to ask you. If he is already my Lord and Savior, have I let him fill me with the Holy Spirit? Have I welcomed the Holy Spirit to come and live inside me? What did he do with those disciples? He breathed on them. He says, now I'm the source. I'm going to breathe out the Spirit of God on you. You must take, he says, take, in breathe, receive, drink. And if you're ready to say, Lord, I, want, I need the power of the Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of me. I need rivers of living water. I haven't the strength. I haven't the wisdom. I've got to have God come inside me. When Jesus died for you, he cleansed your body. Your very physical body. Not only the sins you've committed between you and God, but he cleansed the body. Has your body been used for immoral or unclean or, or, or vulgar things? Mine has. And so my body wouldn't be a suitable place for God to live. A holy God can't come and live in my, this body of mine. Unless, of course, Jesus took on the form of, of, sin, of my sinful flesh. And when he died on the cross, he paid the price for my sinful flesh as well as my spirit. So that now, before God, I'm a holy place. And he can come and live inside this temple of me and dwell within me. If you want to receive right now, or if you already have, are you ready to do it again? Would you put your hand on your heart? We're going to pray for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're going to welcome him. We're going to drink. We're going to inbreathe, as it were, and let, let the Spirit of God come. Lord Jesus, you have, you entered that upper room, or that closed room, and you breathed. And you said, take, inbreathe, receive the Holy Spirit. And we do that today. As we stand in your righteousness, in your death and resurrection, as we stand with you as our Lord and Savior, we, 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 we're right there with them. As you breathe on us, we breathe in. You might even, if you feel comfortable doing it, just take a, a deep breath right now. Just say, come Holy Spirit. Just breathe him in. You are welcome to us. Well, may rivers of living water dwell in our bellies, Lord. Just fill us. We give our bodies to you. Come inside us with your strength and with your healing, with your comfort, your counsel, your conviction. Spirit of God, we can do nothing without you. But with you, we can do all things. You make us strong. You make us wise. You make us good. 
You make us like Jesus. And we welcome you to dwell within us, dear one. Never leave us for all eternity. Come and be with us. We in-breathe. We drink living water. We take the gift that's given to us by faith. And we, because we pray according to your will, we are told that if we pray according to your will, we have the petition which we ask of you. And so right now, we as a people announce by faith, you have filled us. You have come to dwell within us. You are ours. We love you. And we welcome from you every gift, all of the all of the equipment that we need to serve the Lord. Word of knowledge and wisdom, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, healings, uh, discernment of spirits, all of the gifts, Lord. Just have your way, dear one. Minister through us. Teach us to, to minister as Jesus did as he sends us into the world. We receive in Jesus' name. If you agree with me, would you say, I receive in Jesus' name. One more question. He gave them an assignment. You and I today may have know him as our Lord and Savior. We may have received the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and be absolutely certain of it. But have we said yes to the assignment? What was the assignment? He said, as the Father sent me, I send you. Go into the world. This is the season of harvest. Will you? Say yes to the Lord. Will you let him use you? Will you go out of, of this, 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 this locked room, as it were, in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, guide me. Every day is yours. I will serve you. I will live for you. I, in whatever way I can tell others of you and bring your love and your healing and your life to people, I will do it. I will live for that cause. Look, we do lots of things. We work. We have jobs. We, every place we are, we try to be a light. But the heart of a real disciple is that, Jesus, I live for you. I live so that others can know you. I've found life, and I want to be part of bringing life to others. So I'm going to ask one more question. Why, why don't we stand? Well, yes, let's go ahead. Stand. If you would pray after me, if you feel that, if you feel that call. Lord Jesus, this day, I call you Lord. I surrender to the call on my life. You've asked me to go as the Father sent you. And I commit myself. My days belong to you. My words belong to you. My thoughts belong to you. My resources belong to you. Guide me, Lord, as the head of the church. Lead me forward. And I will serve you. These hands are yours. These feet are yours. My eyes, may I see what you want me to see. My ears hear what you want me to hear. I stand here, your child and a soldier in the, in the, in the army of God. In your name I pray it. And I mean it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.